This episode of Imagineer Podcast is sponsored by WDW Magazine. You've heard me talk about them on previous episodes of the show. They are the premier magazine focused on Walt Disney World. I personally subscribe to both the print and digital editions and am in love with their work. The quality of this magazine in terms of visual appeal and written content is amazing. The digital edition gives you instant access to every single issue of WDW Magazine. It's over 80 issues. Each one contains over 100 pages plus embedded video content. The print edition contains over 64 glossy pages of pure content mailed right to your mailbox every month with no interior ads. Best of all, WDW Magazine is giving Imagineer podcast listeners 10% off a new annual subscription to their digital edition with the discount set to continue if you decide to auto-renew. To enroll today and get instant access to over 80 digital issues, simply visit www-magazine.com com slash Imagineer podcast. Again, that's a hyphen between the words WDW and magazine and use the promo code Imagineer. I'll also include the link in the description of this podcast episode, which will take you right to the signup page. This month, WDW Magazine is celebrating Walt Disney World's 50-year anniversary with a 16-month Magic Kingdom wall calendar that will transport you right to the middle of the most magical place on Earth, including a beautiful view of Cinderella Castle on the cover, as well as classic attractions featured each month, like the Haunted Mansion, Jungle Cruise, gorgeous views of Main Street USA, and so much more. Your purchase also includes fun planning stickers and digital wallpapers for all of your devices, providing even more Disney magic for the 50-year celebration. To purchase the calendar, simply visit shop.wdw-magazine.com, again with a hyphen, between WDW and magazine, or click the link in the podcast description. And remember to visit www-magazine.com slash podcast and use promo code Imagineer to take 10% off an annual digital subscription. Hello and welcome to the Imagineer Podcast, your unofficial guide to all things Disney. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and you're listening to episode 87 of the Imagineer Podcast. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about Blaine Gibson. For those of you who might not know Blaine, he is a Disney legend. He was both a Disney animator for the Walt Disney Studios, as well as a sculptor for Wed Enterprises, later of course renamed Walt Disney Imagineering. He worked during Walt's era, starting up at the Walt Disney Studios in 1939, working on films like Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Sleeping Beauty, Bambi, Fantasia, 101 Dalmatians, and many more. He then transferred over to Wed Enterprises upon Walt's request to start sculpting many of the audio animatronic figures you know and love at Disneyland, the 1964 World's Fair, and Walt Disney World, working on attractions like It's a Small World, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, The Hall of Presidents, The Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Jungle Cruise, Enchanted Tiki Room, and so many more. Plus, he is the sculptor of the partner statue that you can find, which is the statue of Mickey, 
along with Walt Disney in the middle of the hub in Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom, as well as the Sharing the Magic statue, which is of Roy O. Disney and Minnie Mouse in Town Square on Main Street, USA. Unfortunately, Blaine did pass away just a few years ago, so although we couldn't chat with him directly, I am so grateful that we were able to chat with his son, Wes. Wes has so many incredible stories to share about his father's life working at the Walt Disney Studios and working at Wed Enterprises and then Walt Disney Imagineering. Wes was there in a lot of cases firsthand to experience the development of these films and of these attractions and get to see a lot behind the scenes. So he has a lot of amazing stories to share about his dad's life and I cannot wait for you to hear this incredible discussion. Of course, at the end of the episode, I'll come back and tell you a little bit more about how you can connect with the Imagineer podcast on all your favorite social media channels and how you can help to inspire and create the future of this show. So grab some headphones, pull up your favorite armchair and enjoy this episode of the Imagineer podcast. While it's always great to be able to get Walt Disney Imagineers onto the show who built the attractions and animators who brought the movies to life, it's not always, unfortunately, possible to get those folks onto the show for one reason or another. And uh, one of those guests I would have loved to have interviewed on the show, but is sadly no longer with us, is Blaine Gibson, who, if you don't know his name, um, you definitely know his work. And if you don't know his work, you're going to get to know very well through this episode, because I am very fortunate and uh, very honored to have his son, Wes, on the podcast. So welcome to the show, Wes. Good to talk with you, Matt. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So glad we're able to find the time. I'm excited to chat with you all about your dad and what life was like for you even growing up on the studio. And uh, I always tell my guests before even I start the show that I usually come up with a list of questions and find that my questions are thrown to the side or take a totally different order based on our conversations. And already pre-conversation before we started recording, you brought up a, a great story that I would love to start with because you mentioned to me that you had grown up, uh, you know, on the studio a lot at Disney and have a lot of, uh, you know, experiences and memories from actually being there in person and even got to meet Walt. So I would love to start with that and hear a little bit more about, um, you know, before we get into your dad's life, what life was like for you uh, growing up around the Disney studio. Well, it was a great deal of fun, needless to say. Uh, and in the uh, in the early fifties, uh, it uh, it truly was a campus. Uh, they had amazing facilities for the uh, uh, for the artists, uh, uh, softball fields, and lots of open space. And of course, as a as a six or seven year old, I was fascinated by the uh, uh, what was going on on the back lot and uh, all the sets. Those were the days, of course, when uh, when both television, which was just really catching hold as a medium, 
that Disney was going to use. And, and movies were, were made on the, you know, on the lots. Uh, so that was very exciting. Uh, I was telling you uh, one, one personal anecdote. Uh, I was over at the studio. I think I was probably seven years old, um, maybe eight. 1953 or 54 so before the official opening of Disneyland but but work was well underway and uh, dad had me outside showing me some of the uh, uh, stage coaches that were going to actually be used uh, to carry guests around at the park and of course unless you were a very early visitor of the park this would not not be something that you would realize was available. But uh, originally Walt said, you know, I want an authentic frontier land and I want our guests to be able to not only see, but actually get into stagecoaches. So there was a prototype sitting next to the animation building between the animation building and the softball field. And Walt was there with uh, a couple of uh, other executives and there were three or four animators, my dad included, uh, watching what was going on. And I was there, too. And, of course, as a kid, I, the idea of stagecoaches was just a fascinating uh, prospect for me. And so here comes this horse-drawn stagecoach up, and, and everybody is looking at it. And Walt looks around, and he, he sees me in this group. And he says, hey, we need to get a kid up on top of the stagecoach. So the next thing I knew, I'm handed up and I'm sitting on top of the stagecoach. Uh, and fortunately, there is a photo that exists of that uh, very uh, special moment for me. But that was typical of, uh, of the informality that was the way uh, the studio operated at that time. And uh, it, was, it was very much of a, a family kind of approach. Uh, and uh, Walt knew the artists, even if they may have been, as my dad was at the time, an assistant animator. Uh, and he quickly came to know dad's other life, which was as a sculptor, uh, because the artists had opportunities to display their uh, their paintings, or in my dad's case, sculpture, uh, right there on the studio lot. Uh, so uh, a very exciting and fun time, uh, particularly as as we began to see the park come together. Yeah, I can only imagine. I've heard other stories about the informality of the lot and how it was a very much a family environment, and made it Walt certainly made it feel like a, a place that was. Yeah, for his like his own home, like an extension of his home, an extension of the cast members' homes as well. Um, that's that's incredible that you had those those memories to share. So we'll definitely talk a little bit about your dad's life when it comes to animation and when it comes to sculpting and uh, anything else he did with Disney. But um, just to go back a little bit in time, uh, I know that your dad grew up in Colorado. Uh, sort of grew up on a farm, similar background to Walt in that sense. Can you talk a little bit maybe about his early life growing up on the farm? Uh, sure. Uh, I got to visit the farm, of course, many times. And uh, it, uh, it was a small uh, 
hard scrabble farm in Rocky Fort, Colorado, which is uh, on the Arkansas River in kind of the middle central eastern part of the state. Uh, my grandfather grew uh, cantaloupes, which is one of the things that Rocky Ford is still famous for, uh, and uh, alfalfa and corn and other crops. Uh, my dad had four brothers, and they worked very hard, but they also uh, had, you know, an exciting farm life, uh, which uh, included all kinds of farm animals and uh, and when they weren't working, uh, they had each other to, uh, uh, to amuse themselves. And my dad was the, the middle of, uh, of five boys. And his two older brothers were both uh, very inventive. My oldest, uh, uh, his oldest brother was, he actually invented one of the very early hydraulic lifts. And uh, my dad's next oldest brother was a, an artist in his own right and a professor at Northern Arizona University. So within the family, uh, dad had a lot to look up to. And he, uh, he started showing his particular skill early on by making uh, objects out of clay that he took from the riverbanks or the ditch banks, the irrigation ditches, which, which of course uh, irrigated the crops. And, uh, and then he uh, was always whittling something. One of his favorite early uh, mediums was uh, soap and specifically ivory soap, uh, easy to carve. And uh, he entered a soap sculpture contest that was spot sponsored by Procter and Gamble when he was 11, just before he turned 12. And he entered a, a, a series of uh, animals that he had carved. Uh, and he ended up, ended up winning a national prize uh, and got $50, which was an astronomical amount of money uh, yeah. in those days. So uh, uh, it was a terrific environment to grow up on. And I think his love of animals and the influence in particular of his older brothers and the encouragement from his mother uh, it really supported his his natural abilities and interests. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I think, symmetry to Walt's story there, too. And I, I, it's amazing how his talent was apparent from the very beginning, winning a, a contest like that at the age of 11. Um, and having that influence around him, I could see that definitely helping to shape the career he ultimately ended up taking. And sort of fast forwarding a little bit, I know that he, you know, he, he went to Colorado University, I believe, and um, at the time was, or came, you know, came, came aware of, became aware of an opportunity to work for Disney. And there was this, um, from what I understand, like an, an art test uh, to sort of mail in a sketch. And uh, I heard or read that Disney ended up loving it so much they had him sign a release so they could use it. Um, I'm curious if you could sort of share that, that story of what ultimately ended up bringing him out to California. Sure. Uh, yes, it, it's true. I mean, it seems... Uh, it, it, it truly seems like another age <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that you would have an opportunity to uh, 
to es essentially take a screen test, screen test for animators, mind you, um, and, uh, and do it uh, by mail. Uh, it, what, what they did was they sent a, a, a whole list of exercises, uh, drawings that you had to make, and uh, you had to complete all of those. And then the very last uh, item uh, that was part of the test was for uh, a candidate to, uh, to do their own sketch or cartoon, whatever they wanted to do. And so my dad did this uh, sketch, uh, was actually a cartoon, which showed uh, a, uh, the, the rear part of a, uh, of a cow uh, and a, a boy sitting on a milk, milk pail, uh, milking the cow and grabbing a hold of one of the cow's teats. And uh, you can see in the foreground uh, a little kitty cat and the little kitty cat has its mouth open and the boy is aiming the milk directly into uh, the cat's mouth. And so he put that sketch uh, into his uh, portfolio, as it were, and sent it off uh, to the studio. And uh, didn't think too much about it. He thought probably nothing would come of it. Then he did get a communication uh, from the studio. They said they were interested. They were interested in him coming to Hollywood. But uh, the first thing that he needed to do was sign a release for that particular sketch. Uh, and uh, of course, he did so. Uh, what uh, happened later on is there actually was a cartoon, cartoon short which used that, that exact scene in it. Not something that my dad worked on, but it, uh, but it did in, end up in a cartoon later on. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I was trying to even think about, uh, do you remember the name of that short? I was trying to remember. I, I honestly can't remember it. Uh, I've been it asked this many times. Uh, they did so many shorts. Yeah. Uh, and this was just one scene. Uh, but, uh, but yes, that's exactly what happened. And then uh, he finally did get the invitation to come. Uh, they didn't pay your way in those days, of course. Uh, because it was still the Depression, it was 1939, uh, in the spring, and so Dad managed to cobble together and borrow some money and uh, take the train uh, from Lahana, which was the next town up from Rocky Ford, and make his way to uh, California and uh, uh, got out of, uh, at Union Station, same Union Station that's still there today, uh, and from there, uh, made his way to the studio, which was then in Hollywood on Hyperion Boulevard. Amazing. And I know he worked, you know, he went on to work on a number of, uh, really famous films as, uh, as an in-between artist and assistant animator in the beginning. And, um, so I know, you know, he, just to name a few of them, he worked on Bambi, Fantasia. Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, Sleeping Beauty. There's just a, a lot that he that he worked on. What was it like in his early days when he first arrived in in California and started working at the studio? 
Well, what's interesting, uh, and this is a reflection of of the way all uh, of the way Walt viewed the business, even though we're talking about artists here who uh, had to have the talent to get in uh, in the first place. Uh, all of the young artists uh, at that time started out in what was called traffic. And that, uh, as the name may, it would suggest, meant that they were responsible for carrying uh, whatever mail uh, or other items that could be carried by an individual uh, all around the studio lot. Uh, so if uh, an animator wanted to see, let's say, a sketch that had been done for an earlier cartoon, uh, and they, met, they might have been working on, uh, uh, they were still working on uh, Pinocchio, for example, at that time. Then uh, the, the young man in traffic would have to go down to what was called the morgue, where all the old drawings resided, and pick up the sketch, and then take it to the animator uh, who had requested it. Uh, but he would also run all other kinds of errands and go all over the lot. So one of the stories I remember uh, Dad telling, it was, it was such a pleasure for him. He had to deliver a message to Leopold Stokowski. Wow. Leopold Stokowski, of course, was directing the music for Fantasia. Right. And that was being done in one of the sound stages. So Dad actually carried this message and got to go into the sound stage and, and uh, listen to uh, uh, Leopold Stokowski conducting uh, the orchestra. Uh, but Walt's idea was that this gave the young artist an appreciation for everything that went into the art of making film. Uh, and, uh, and they would be then uh, not just humbled by the, the, the complexity and breadth of the experience, but given a, a much better understanding of, of uh, how it took a team to produce a, a, a motion picture. Uh, so dad wasn't there for very long. He went into, as you suggested, <clears throat> doing in-between work. And he did in-between work on, uh, uh, on Fantasia, a little bit on Pinocchio, uh, much more on Bambi. And, um, uh, and then uh, also they did special effects on Bambi, too. Uh, and you mentioned some of the other, other movies. By the time he... Uh, in, in the 50s, uh, he, he worked first in, in the effects department and had an opportunity to stay there if he wanted to, but he really wanted to do character animation. So he took a job for a little less money, uh, but the job was working for Frank Thomas, who my dad considered uh, the greatest animator who ever lived. And he was Frank's assistant for uh, three or four years uh, and learned a great deal from him and he and Frank became close friends and then dad uh, uh, moved up to uh, Sleeping Beauty which uh, came out in 1957 and that that particular uh, uh, feature was the first one on which he was a character animator and then he uh, 
He also was a character animator on uh, 101 Dalmatians. He did Pongo and Perdita uh, for that film. So that, uh, that kind of, the from in between to character animation bookended his uh, animation career, which lasted about uh, from 1939 to uh, 1959. Yeah, it's amazing. And to be able to work with Frank Thomas, I'm sure he learned a ton. And uh, definitely, I mean, again, iconic films, uh, very memorable characters that he that he worked on. As his son, what was it like to see those films for the first time and to know that your uh, your dad worked on them? Well, I, I had, <clears throat> I had, I guess, two uh, opportunities. One, of course, was to watch the uh, the actual. Uh, putting together of the film, and I'm talking about the drawings. And Dad had an animation desk in our house. So he didn't just work on drawings when he was at uh, the studio. He would often work on drawings uh, at home. And I can remember, I think the first feature that I particularly re remember him doing drawings of was uh, a Lady in the Tramp. <clears throat> And uh, he, uh, so he would do the drawings on the desk. And these desks, if you've ever seen them, they're collector's items now. There's under lighting so that you're putting a piece of animation paper uh, over glass and, uh, and it's lit uh, so that the animator can, uh, can really uh, see exactly what they're sketching as they're working. And so I got to not only see that, but then, of course, go into uh, to the studio. And on some occasions, particularly with Sleeping Beauty, I remember going into the uh, sweat boxes, which is what they were called, which were actual uh, little, uh, not many theaters, but areas where you could go and, uh, and watch the, the scenes uh, that the animators had put together and they'd be critiqued and then you could make improvements and adjustments. And it was very exciting to see these drawings, all these drawings come to life and watch these uh, animals or human figures uh, move. In fact, the scene that I remember uh, seeing uh, with Sleeping Beauty was a scene that my dad worked on and it's, it's fairly early, well, it's not early on in the picture, but fairly early on where uh, the king uh, points to uh, Maleficent and says, seize that creature. Uh, and that was a particular scene that my dad did. And I got to see it uh, as it was evolving, uh, even before you got to, uh, to see it as a, as a colored image. Uh, these were just drawings that you were incredible yeah that's amazing i i can only imagine getting to sort of peek behind the curtain as it's being developed and then see the final product it's a really rare thing to get to see unless you are of course working on it or going back and looking at the archives later on so um definitely a, a very cool uh, experience to have that i definitely want to talk a little bit about um your dad's thoughts on Walt, only because I find that there's a lot of um, 
you know, not a lot of people left who knew Walt personally. And uh, I know you had the chance to meet him um, on at least that one occasion. What did your, how, or how did your dad describe Walt either as a, uh, a leader or a boss or as a, um, you know, even outside of work? And then did you have any particular memories beyond that example that you mentioned before uh, in the studio a lot of, uh, of getting to interact with Walt? Well, my dad, uh, of course, was uh, was a great admirer of Waldis, as uh, I'm sure virtually everyone that you've spoken with. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> was. He had, uh, dad had, a, a, I think, a special opportunity to, uh, to interact with him because he, he um, even when my dad was still an assistant animator, he was doing sculpture on his own all the time. And so uh, Walt took an interest in the sort of other sidelines, as it were, or other avocations of his artists. Uh, and that was a particular gift that he had, that he, he, um, he, he was not only interested in what the assigned work, so to speak, was, uh, but what were his artists doing on their own. Uh, he, he really wanted to see that. And that, of course, was very instrumental in how he put together the original Imagineering team, uh, of which my dad was a member. And so he got to know Walt when Walt noticed his sculptures. And uh, there's an interesting story about one sculpture, which was a, a mountain gorilla that my dad had displayed in the uh, in the area next to the commissary at the studio. There was a place where uh, there were revolving exhibitions of, of uh, artists' work, and you could go in and, and see them, and you could purchase them. And so dad gets a call. Uh, this is probably in the, it's in the early 50s, even before the work on Disneyland had become, had begun. And, uh, came in from Ken Anderson and Ken said, Blaine, uh, Walt uh, wants to buy your uh, mountain gorilla. He went to the exhibit and he was really taken with this gorilla. Uh, and uh, dad said, uh, well, you know, uh, I'm planning on giving that to my son uh, and I don't, have a, a, I don't have a mold for it. Uh, let me think about getting a mold for it and perhaps we can cast it in bronze. And Ken said, well, you know, he really, Walt is really interested in, in buying this. And, and my dad asked him, why? Why does Walt want it? And it turned out that Walt had been approached by the, the LA County Zoo, which was then called the Griffith Park Zoo. And they were interested in having the studio uh, design an entrance to the park. Walt had seen the gorilla, which is an abstract design uh, and has a very large opening. And Walt thought that this would make a great entrance uh, to, the, uh, to the zoo. And that was the particular reason that he had an interest in. It turned out that by the time uh, Dad had figured out how a cast would be done and so on, that Walt had decided that the project wasn't of interest to him. But it's still an interesting story. 
both in terms of Walt's uh, observing of what his artists were doing and, uh, and kind of the breadth of, of uh, his vision for, uh, for different attractions around the city. That's incredible. And uh, I could I could see how Walt would even be in some way inspired by that. I know he was already sort of thinking of starting up a park. And uh, these were little pieces that I'm sure added up to what ended up being Disneyland. And because your dad was a had a love for sculpting, even as you mentioned in the beginning, had, had a love for it and entered contests at as young as age 11 and, and continued to do that. How did he feel when Walt approached him about joining the original Imagineering team to help to b- design and build Disneyland? Well, just a little bit of background. Yeah. Dad did a number of sculptures for the park. Uh, and this followed once Walt knew that my father was a sculptor as well as an animator, uh, he asked him to do uh, a whole range of things. So everything from uh, Indian heads to, uh, to elephants to uh, the, uh, the figurehead for the, the Columbia schooner. Uh, there were a whole range of projects that my dad did uh, while he was uh, also doing animation. So Walt got to, dad, my dad got to participate in, in many of the uh, aspects of uh, three-dimensional design that went into the park, even before uh, he was approached to, uh, <clears throat> to become an Imagineer. But uh, that story is quite interesting. When uh, dad, of course, by, by becoming a, a character animator, he had really achieved one of the goals He'd set out for himself when he was a young man, and he loved animation, loved all the aspects of it, and was really quite content to remain an animator. And of course, as you know, uh, the animators, the principal animators like uh, Frank and Ollie and uh, Johnny Lansbury and Eric Larson Larson and others uh, stayed on. Um, but, uh, and so dad kind of envisioned himself becoming part of that group. But when he was asked, uh, dad said, I have to think about it. Uh, and the actual story is that my dad went home on a Friday. And in this case, it was, uh, I think it was Ken Peterson, uh, who had called him and said, look, Walt really wants you to come over and be part of this original team of what was called then Wet Enterprises, Walter Elias Disney, uh, the three initials uh, of Walt's name uh, became the name of this offshoot. And dad said, well, I, uh, I need to talk to my wife. I'll go home. I'll think about it. Well, that was 59. I was 13 years old at the time. And I remember the conversation like it was yesterday. And my mother was not in favor of dad going off on this. She thought it was a kind of a wild idea uh, because it was new and, uh, and it was unknown. And uh, my dad said, yeah, but it, you know, it could be, it, it could combine some of my interests. I love sculpture. Uh, but by the end of the weekend, 
my dad had been convinced largely by my mother that uh, he should stay in animation. So he, he went in and uh, Ken called him up and said, so what's your decision? And, uh, and dad said, uh, well, I think I'm going to stay, stay in animation. I really like staying in animation. And Ken Peterson said, that's the wrong answer, Blaine. <laughs> <laughs> and to make a slightly longer story short, after conversations with Frank Thomas, who had talked to Ken and probably talked to Walt as well, uh, and Frank came in and had a long talk with Dad. Uh, Dad changed his mind, and uh, and he became part of the original Imagineering group. Definitely a good decision in the yeah. in the long run. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, it was good. I think it was really good for Dad and and uh, and and good for the company, and and certainly good for uh, uh, the attractions that came to life uh, over the next decades. Yeah. How did your dad even approach that challenge? Because it was something that was a little unprecedented. I'm sure there were, and I know there were other existing, um, you know, amusement enterprises out there, but nothing quite like Disneyland. So these were really pioneers in the industry. What was it? Uh, what was that like for your dad to start up there? Well, I, I guess dad would say, uh, you know, on the one hand, the, the sculpture aspect of it, was was fairly easy for him because he was a sculptor right and uh, and since he'd been an animator he was uh very comfortable with the idea of taking drawings and turning them into something three-dimensional in fact just to to mention an example uh when they were doing uh sleeping beauty the um, the animators, specifically Frank Thomas uh, and and Ollie Johnston, they 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 were having a little bit of difficulty uh, with the three fairies. And if you remember the three fairies in the film, yes, um, they're central characters in the film, and uh, they they weren't happy with the with the drawings. And so Frank came in and said uh, to Dad, why don't you do a maquette, which is a small sculpture uh, of, uh, of the three fairies so that the artists can see them in, in three dimensions. We think that'll help. We think that'll give them more depth and differentiation. And so Dad did a maquette. Uh, and as far as I know, there are only two examples of them in existence. Uh, I have one, and uh, Frank Thomas's son has the other. Uh, but they were used by the uh, the artists uh, as a model, as it were, for uh, for the sketches that they ended up doing. That's a fairly common practice uh, in animation, and uh, used especially by uh, companies like Pixar. So Dad was anyway very familiar with the idea of taking uh, concept sketches and turning them into three dimensions. So the prospect of working with uh, someone like Mark Davis, whom my dad knew very well, of course, and was one of the nine old men, uh, the only, only one who came over and was part of the original Imagineering team. So it was, it, it was daunting only in the sense that they knew that 
that the figures that they were going to be doing <clears throat> were expected to move. That was what was new and how you would fit the machinery uh, into, uh, into sculpture um, was, uh, was something that hadn't really been done before. And of course, you probably know um, that uh, the Enchanted Tiki Room was there really, really the first foray into taking this concept of what became known as audio animatronics and making it real. And uh, Dad's role with that was to design the uh, the parrots, uh, who of course are the stars of the show, along with. Uh, the masks that move and the flowers that move and everything else. And there's a, a, a really interesting story about uh, the, uh, the actual design of the birds. Uh, by this time, this is like 1962 probably, Walt has really pretty much moved over to, uh, to WED as his, his primary focus. He's, he's not really that interested or that focused on animation any longer. He's really caught up with, uh, with the, uh, the three-dimensionality of, of the figures that would become part of, of Disneyland and ultimately Disney World. And so he's taking a very active interest in everything. So uh, Frank, uh, or, or uh, excuse me, uh, Mark Davis ha had done a series of sketches uh, for these birds, and Dad had done uh, uh, a, uh, a model of a parrot that he was pretty satisfied with and was ready to, uh, uh, to show to Walt. And that's the way the, you know, the principal art directors there, that's the way they would do it. They'd work with John Hinch, and when they were ready to show something to Walt, something that was going to be important, a star of an attraction, uh, they'd get together and agree that it was ready to show to him. So uh, they agreed that uh, uh, Walt was going to come in and see this, this bird, uh, this bottle, uh, the following uh, week. Uh, but uh, in the meeting, Mark Davis wasn't satisfied uh, with it. And... Uh, he said to dad, he said, you know, I think it's, um, it's a little bit too realistic, boy. I think we need to go for something that is a little more of a caricature. So dad was a little unsure about that, but he uh, respected uh, Mark's advice. And, and I think John Hinch kind of agreed. So he went back and he worked on it a little bit and got it ready uh, for Walt's viewing the following week, made it more of a caricatured parrot. So Walt comes in, looks at it, walks around it, and the first thing he says is, he said, who said I liked big heads? <laughs> this parrot's head is too big. It doesn't look like a parrot. And he sort of stomped off. And of course, Dad tells the story, used to tell the story of he, he was ready to go out to lunch with Claude Coates and Mark, and it just totally ruined his, ruined his lunch, ruined the next <laughs> three yeah. or four days. Uh, and of course, he went back, he made some alterations. They all agreed to, 
to adjust it. And ultimately, uh, the parrots were the parrots that became part of the show. But, um, but anyway, kind of an interesting anecdote uh, that gives you a little bit of insight into how the team would work together. And of course, I neglected to mention that the machinery, uh, probably with Wavell Rogers in charge, had to be put inside those birds to make them move. So the whole notion of Imagineering, which was a brand new concept, was that you would take these artists uh, and you'd take their work and then you'd ask the engineers uh, and the machinists to, uh, to make them move. Yeah, definitely a, a great story and anecdote. And uh, it's uh, interesting how I, I did not know too much about that story about the creation of the, the birds and the, the heads originally being too big for Waltz. I knew a little bit from uh, talking with, with Haley about her grandma, Harriet, about the idea of making the birds breathe. I knew that was Harriet, is Harriet's the one that, that uh, took them from, uh, from parents with no feathers and, and uh, <laughs> Uh, put those touches on that uh, uh, made them so believable. That's and right. So attractive to fans. Absolutely. Um, and I definitely want to talk about some of the key projects that he, that your dad worked on as well, which there's a number of them. But I first am curious if you got the chance to visit Disneyland uh, when it opened or soon after it opened and what that experience was like. Yes, I, I was there. Uh, uh, with my parents, with my dad, on uh, opening day, uh, which is, as I, I know you've heard from Bob Gurr and others, uh, because everyone was telling, has told you the story that the asphalt was still wet. It was That's such right. a hot day that uh, uh, <laughs> if you had high heels on, and I think Harry used to tell the story of women getting their heels stuck in the, uh, in, in the asphalt. Yeah, um, it was way too many people uh, for uh, uh, for the uh, uh, the number of attractions that they had. I remembered, of course, as a kid, as just being just thrilling, uh, just the whole notion of walking down Main Street and seeing this uh, you know three quarters scale town and how 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 real it felt and how exciting it was to go in the buildings. And then, uh, you know, I, I remember, I think, uh, the Jungle Boat ride, that was a thrilling uh, moment uh, for me. So to me, it was just a terribly exciting day. I didn't see everything that didn't go, didn't go right uh, with it. I saw only the things that, uh, that you'd see through a kid's eye, and it was make-believe come true. It was exactly what Walt hoped it would be. Yeah, it's definitely a famous day talking about the first day Disneyland opens. And uh, I, it's uh, pretty cool that you got to be there that first day and to witness that firsthand. Not a lot of people, of course, uh, had the chance to do that. Um, there are some huge projects your dad worked on that were a little bit later on. So before getting to that, one of the key sort of um, or pivotal moments I feel for audio animatronics was with the 1964 World's Fair. Besides the, the well, two marvels, in addition to many others, one being the boat system for It's a Small World, but the other being the like first real human-like audio animatronic figure with great moments with Mr. Lincoln. Um, 
what was that challenge like? Because that has to be pretty incredible and in some ways maybe a little uh, scary to have to build you know, Abraham Lincoln, essentially, um, as realistic as possible. What, what has your dad shared about that experience? Well, it, I, I got to see uh, uh, that, that project uh, uh, really quite up close and, and personal because I was, uh, I think I was 17 when they, they started working on it. it. Of course, Lincoln, as you know, was one of Walt's great heroes. He was also a, a a hero of my uh, my dad's because uh, on my my uh, on the Gibson side of the family, uh, my dad actually had a a uh, uh, a great uncle who uh, had uh, uh, been a uh, uh, if not a confidant, uh, at least an acquaintance of Lincoln. So. Wow. We had a. He grew up with uh, with photos of Lincoln in the, their their small farmhouse. So uh, Lincoln was very much a hero of his, and he had done. Uh, although Walt never saw it, I don't think. But my dad did a uh, terracotta bust of Lincoln in the early fifties, um, which uh, which we still have, and. Uh, so anyway, of course, Dad was the one that got the assignment to to do the figure, and they uh, they had the benefit of getting a hold of a life mask of Lincoln. Uh, that that particular uh, uh, dimension or aspect or story is illustrated in in a uh, in a piece that you may have seen that uh, that was done for. Uh, the Wonderful World of Disney, in which Dad uh, is being interviewed by Walt, and they're talking about uh, how they're going to do this, and they show the life mask. But uh, the again, the sculpture was was a pleasure for Dad. The uh, the absolute uh, frightening and nothing in Dad's entire career was more uh, terrifying. Then first of all, figuring out how to get all the machinery inside this head that Dad had sculpted. That was number one, um, without distorting the head. Uh, and then ultimately, when they put the entire figure together, uh, to get the figure to move and to speak, uh, when nothing like this had ever been done in history. It was absolutely groundbreaking. So the first piece, getting the mechanics into the head, and you can, without going into any detail, this is really pre-computer age, as you know. So you're working with tubes and, and machinery that would seem quaint and ancient by today's standards, and, but also much larger, not miniaturized like things are today. So how do you put this in a roughly six and a half, seven foot figure and get this machinery into the head. Well, I can remember my dad and uh, Waithel Rogers in particular, and uh, probably Roger Brogy, um, going back and forth about how, we were how they were gonna do this. Because dad had everything sculpted out and it had all been 
you know, they were dealing with a cask, which meant it was flexible by this point, fiberglass. Uh, and um, they couldn't get it in. And finally, Dad said, well, I think the only answer is we, we, we can't adjust the front part of the, the face, nor the side parts that the audience is going to see. But we can do something with the, the rear of Lincoln's head. So the agreement was we would enlarge the, they would enlarge the, uh, the back part of the head and cover it with hair. And that enabled them just barely to get the machinery into the head. So they managed to solve that problem. Then once they got uh, the head on the body and the machinery into the body, then they had to get this figure to rise from a seated position, stand up, uh, move his arms and hands, and speak, and move his head and speak. Well, this was a, a nightmare and a schedule that nobody thought they could actually do. And the only anecdote I will share is that we are probably less than two months out from when the, um, the figure had to be shipped to be part of the Illinois State Fair exhibit in New York, less than two months out. And we're sitting in the, uh, the studio on the lot. Uh, and I don't know if you, you probably know that there's a, a full, uh, uh, I don't mean a studio, I mean a full theater uh, movie theater on the right. lot. Right. And uh, that's where they have the Lincoln figure set up. And he's set up on the stage in the chair uh, with an appropriate background, fully clothed. And all the technicians are there. Uh, the lighting is set. And uh, dad has invites me over on an evening. And I go over and dad is sitting there with uh, with Wavell Rogers and with Claude Coates and John Hinch and um, and Jim Algar, who was producing the whole thing. And uh, they say, say, all right, let's, you know, let's run it. So the very first take, the figure gets up and as he starts to move his arm, he's fully... Uh, he's fully upright, but his arm goes up and then suddenly comes right down and breaks the part of the chair, the right hand part of the chair. Uh, complete malfunction. Everything stops uh, and it's back to the drawing board. So, and, and I wasn't the only one to observe those kinds of failures. I just happened to be there one night. And everybody, of course, just gasps and everything stops. And so you got to go back. They go back to Wed. They got to work out the kinks. And it, it you know, ultimately, it almost magically. Uh, and it's a tribute to all these guys working endless hours to put this together. Uh, you know, it clearly is a tribute to Walt's vision and, and his characteristic of asking people to do things that, that they really didn't believe were possible to do. Uh, and if you ask the people afterwards, was this possible? They would have really said with hindsight, 
uh, they'd still say no <laughs> because the engineering was was they were they were being asked to put in there was ahead of its time, but somehow they managed to make it work, uh, and it became a phenomenon, uh, and that became then the basis for all of the other complex audio animatronics that would follow. Yeah, and uh, I definitely want to speak about a few of those projects and going a little bit out of order, just to not so much chronologically, but more topically consistent. Um, you know, it sort of led to this tradition with the Hall of Presidents, which for me is an incredible feat to, or an incredible tradition that Disney continues to keep alive. And uh, just the, the idea that, you know, your dad worked on originally for the Hall of Presidents, I think it was like 35, um, 34, 35 different individual sculptures, and then continue that all the way through George W. Bush and even consulted on um, Barack Obama. So essentially for his whole lifetime was continuing to sculpt or help sculpt the presidents for the Hall of Presidents. So can you talk a little bit more about that experience for him and perhaps for you as well? Sure. Uh, well, the first thing that uh, Dad would want me to say is that at that time, they, you know, they had a very large sculpture studio uh, at uh, Walt Disney Imagineering. And um, so Dad had a team, I think, at one time of, of 12 sculptures, 12 sculptors. So, and these were really top-notch guys. So it could have never been done without, uh, without having a team of that size. Of course. Because not only, of course, were they working on that, they were working on multiple uh, other shows uh, for the park. So those were very busy years, really, from, you know, 1963 up, up through the opening of... Uh, of uh, Walt Disney World was just a peak period for them. Uh, but Dad, uh, Dad was the principal designer, and he um, he he designed himself. He did most of the uh, the famous presidents. I guess is the best way of describing it. So uh, you know, if it was Washington, Jefferson. Uh, Adams, uh, really the, all the early presidents, uh, Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, you know, many of them. Uh, and then uh, he had uh, some of his assistants like George Snowden and Peter Carmode, uh, who took responsibility for finishing uh, some of the lesser known presidents but they all had to pass muster with that. Uh, but he would focus on the ones that had a, more of a starring role uh, in, in the production. Uh, so yeah, and I, you know, I was uh, still in California at the time. And so I got to go down, I was at, at, down at uh, WED or WBI frequently. So I would see these guys uh, come to life and it was in and out of the, uh, the sculpture studio. So it's a very exciting time and uh, um, an amazingly productive uh, period. And you look back on it now, almost seems impossible that they could do so much in such a short period of time. Yeah, it's definitely an amazing feat to be able to do all that um, 
stands for the creativity, the motivation, the leadership. It's all a really inspiring thing to look back on. Um, you know, a, a lot of what we've been talking about, except for the the tiki birds, when it comes to Hall presidents and with great moments with Mr. Lincoln, they're all sculptures based on famous, real people, leaders. Um, a lot of the other attractions that your dad worked on, things like Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion and many others, there were characters that were totally characterized, just, um, you know, totally new, unique individual characters created for those attractions. And so I read, I read that your dad would often either in, uh, in church or at a restaurant be like intently studying someone's face as inspiration uh, for these characters. Did you ever witness him uh, doing that in person? Oh, uh, well, I, I have to say this, this is, it's really more secondhand for me because I was away at school uh, for most of that time. But, uh, but he was always on the lookout for interesting faces and it didn't matter where he was. So the stories are certainly true that uh, on more than one occasion, my mother had to kick him under the table if they were in a restaurant or um, had to uh, jab him in the ribs if they were in church and he was studying <laughs> an interesting face. But that was true for my father's entire life. In fact, one of the early things that he did on his own was to do a whole series of uh, uh, masks of uh, different kinds of faces, caricatures, um, you know, reminiscent of some of the caricatures that uh, that earlier artists had done in earlier times. So he was he was fascinated by people with interesting faces. So the idea of creating a whole group of pirates was uh, that was really fun, and and being able to work directly with Mark because uh, he and Mark were kind of the the key design figures, uh, along with Claude Coates, uh, for uh, for the pirate ride, and Mark would come up with these uh, great sketches, and and uh, you know Claude was working on the overall uh, layout and design of the ride, and uh, so Dad would would work do a lot of a lot of his stuff from take a lot of his ideas from. Uh, from the work that they had done, and then bring bring them to life again with his team. But uh, yeah, there were there were a lot of great moments with that. I remember one uh, one funny moment when, uh, uh, and, and it, it it's it's a little bit sexist now, but one of the scenes, or more than a little sexist, I guess, but one of the scenes is is uh, the pirates. Uh, uh, looking at a redhead who is sort of showing her wares uh, and the pirates are yelling, we want the redhead, we want the redhead. And my dad did the redhead and uh, he sculpted the entire figure. And when Walt came in to look at it, the only comment Walt had was, said, Blaine, you, you might want to tone that down a little bit. It's a, I think it's maybe a little bit too sexy. Wow. <laughs> so he had to do a little bit of modification for it. But um, yeah, it was it was great fun. And still to this day, I think holds up as as a uh, as a tremendous uh, production piece. Uh, it's just a great show. And, uh, and, you know, a whole lot of fun to do. 
And the same thing was true of the haunted mansion. Um, you know, when you have free reign like that, uh, it, uh, I think it brings out the best in people. And he had a great team on the haunted mansion because that also included as, as did the pirate ride, um, in, incredible talents like Yale Gracie, uh, who did some of the amazing effects, uh, that made things look so real. If you remember on the pirate ride, the, as you go through the scene where the ships are, or the, 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 the town is burning, all of the flames, that was all designed by, uh, by Yale. And it was so effective. People were sure that it was real fire when they first saw it. Um, and the same thing with uh, so many of the effects in, in the Haunted Mansion. Um, so yeah, they were, they were uh, it was a great adventure. And to be truthful, uh, Dad was able to use some of the figures that he he'd done for uh, uh, for the pirate ride, uh, sort of refashion them for uh, uh, for the haunted mansion. Uh, so there was a little bit of uh, synergy there that uh, that worked. Yeah, it's a very effective or efficient way to make sure you can build and create all these different animatronic figures. I always find it a fun challenge to piece together with the pirates to the, to the ghosts yeah. <laughs> or yeah. from one attraction to the next. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's also true. There's a carousel, uh, John from the carousel of progress appears in spaceship earth. Right. Like there's, there's a right. number of uh, yeah. animatronics that are, sh that their faces are shared. And you're like, I think I've, I've seen that face before. I don't know why. Um, but that's exactly the way it goes. Uh, well, let me tell you one, yeah. one story about, uh, about all of these uh, these figures that were yeah. done, there were so many of them, uh, and to this day, there's a there's a, a separate archives at at Walt Disney Imagineering, uh, which if you have have the opportunity and can get special permission, you can go in and you can see it. And essentially, it is just shelves and shelves and shelves of display displaying all of the work. <clears throat> that dad and the other sculptors did. And um, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to, to see it. And the story is that, that sometime in the, it had to be the late 60s, it was after Walt's death. And uh, several of the, it might, might have been Dick Irvine, who might have been the, the president of WED at that time, but one of the uh, executives was uh, conducting a tour and there were uh, several people from uh, the Soviet Union who were being wined and dined uh, and they had come over and these were people who were high up artists, I guess, within the Soviet Union. And they had been invited to come and tour uh, Walt Disney Imagineering. And they were brought in at one point to uh, what at that time dad was still working there, of course. Uh, that, was, that was the area where dad kept all of these figures. And as you suggested correctly, they would, they would use them much in the same way that animators might use drawings from previous features in doing new drawings for a, a, a current feature. Anyway, they brought these uh, Soviet bigwigs into uh, uh, 
this this room and said, look, you know, see all this work. And they looked up and said, well, that's that's amazing. Well, you know, who who's responsible for this? And whoever was conducting the tour mentioned my dad's name and said, well, they're, they're primarily the creations of Blaine Gibson, which, of course, wasn't technically true. Uh, he had a lot of people helping him uh, do the work. But the Soviet uh, bigwig turned and said something along the lines of, well, that's impossible. No team of people could do that in a lifetime. And, of course, all these figures had been done within the span of about eight years, <laughs> all wow. of these busts. So it's, it, it, you know, it's a comment on the productivity as well as it is on the, the comment on the, the different uh, systems, <laughs> the contrast between capitalism and, and uh, uh, communism with respect to creativity and what's possible, I guess. Certainly true. Um... Well, that's pretty. That's a pretty amazing story for sure. I, I know that there is a lot of a difference. Uh, you know, we we could talk about each individual attraction, but rather than go through them one by one, are there any? I before before um, I'll mention that we do. I definitely want to talk a little bit about the the partner statue and sharing the magic statue. But other than those, are there any other attractions or stories that stand out um, in your memory from? Anything your dad might have worked on uh, that might make for a fun anecdote or, or interesting story? Um, well, I think, I mean, you mentioned we've, we've talked a lot about the, uh, the World's Fair. Um, we haven't mentioned, of course, that, the, you know, the figure, uh, which my dad did uh, for, for uh, the small world attraction. Right. Um, and... I, I think that was one of dad's favorite attractions, particularly because he got to work with Mary Blair very closely on that. And he was a great admirer of, of Mary's designs. Um, thought she was a fantastic designer. Um, so that was, a, you know, that, I think he would, he would say that was uh, one of the more exciting things that he worked on. I also wanted to, uh, to highlight why my dad thought that It's a Small World was such a special achievement. In addition to the guiding force of Mary Blair's design, he he felt it showed how all the key parts of Imagineering and, and the studio as well worked together synergistically. Uh, all the way from Fred Jerger and the, and the model makers to the engineers and, and machinists who figured out how to move so many people through a show without it feeling hurried to the, I, I'll, I'll never get it out of my head, music written by the Sherman brothers uh, and to artists like Harriet Burns and Alice Davis who who painted and clothed the stars of the show, uh, the children of the of the world, and he thought the result was not only visually exciting, uh, but it that it it was such a feel good experience with a timeless message. Um, and Dad, of course, stayed with the company uh, really uh, up up through the uh, the completion of Tokyo Disneyland. And uh, and the repurposing of 
of, uh, uh, of some of the attractions that they had to do for that. But, uh, but I think he, he, he was excited by the time he left uh, in 93 to, uh, to begin to do uh, some of his own work and, and always, of course, had the expectation, I think, and the hope that he'd be able to do things that um, that uh, were, were were being done in conjunction with the studio because he loved the studio so much. I think the one figure that I would mention um, there there are two, but one that really stands out is the uh, the statue of Sam Rayburn, um, which is at the uh, Sam Rayburn uh, Library and Museum in Bonham, Texas. And as you probably know, Sam Rayburn is one of two or three of the most famous uh, speakers of the house. Right. And um, dad was approached through the studio uh, about taking on this, this project. And, uh, and of course, the way dad approached everything, uh, whether it was from, from Lincoln, of course, on to... Uh, to any, any historical figures that he did and all the presidents. It, it was extensive study. He looked at not only all the visual stuff, but he did a lot of reading too. So he got to know Sam Rayburn quite well uh, through reading about him. And uh, so that, that, and that is a, that's really a very worthwhile figure to, uh, to see. I think it's one of his best sculptors or sculptures. Uh, he was very proud of that. And he also did a figure of a World War II aviator named James, uh, named uh, Joe Foss, uh, and that figure sits in the uh, in the concourse at the Sioux Falls International Airport. Uh, and Joe Foss was a famous fighter pilot in World War II. So those are two um, that uh, those are commissions that came through uh, connections at the studio, um, but. Um, yeah, and if you want to talk about the partner statue, let's do that. Yeah, I know that that was something that's um, sort of a, a, a two-pronged question to a, a two different statues. One being, do you recall what it was like the day that Walt passed? Because that's something that to everyone I've asked who was there and remembers that day was quite a momentous occasion, um, not in a good way. and along the same lines then, um, you know, what was it like for years down the line or decades down the line for your dad to work on the partner statue and the sharing the magic statue, which still stand decades. Yeah. Um, well, I remember, uh, I remember the day very well. I was, uh, in the process of getting ready for exams at Georgetown university in Washington DC, which is where I was in school. Uh, it was in December as you know, of 66. And uh, I, I did not know, my father had not told me that Walt was sick, although he and, and um, the other art directors and anybody who, was, who had worked closely with Walt knew he was in decline uh, that year. Uh, and, and dad saw him very, very frequently because as you also know, I'm sure, Pirates was, uh, he loved that that attraction yeah uh probably more than than any other attraction that he was involved with 
three-dimensional attraction. So he was he was over uh, at WDI all the time and looking at what uh, uh, what the artists had done. Um, so they knew, but uh, I didn't know, and so I I was literally I'd just gotten out of class, gotten in my car, and was driving back to my apartment, and I heard it on the radio, and I just you know stopped the car and uh, shed some tears, and then got on the phone and talked to Dad, and of course they were um, they were all in shock. Um, and uh, and of course managed to pull themselves together, um, but it uh, you know it it wasn't wasn't easy. I will say that uh, uh, Roy Disney was a uh, was someone who my dad admired a great deal too, and uh, and Roy, as you've you've heard, I'm sure had a central role along with some of the other executives of really uh, uh, getting the, the key teams together and, and, and telling them, of course, that they had to, uh, they had to carry on and, uh, and they did so. But it was, a, it was a devastating day. And Walt, of course, was still a young man, really, and we consider him very much in his prime. Uh, today. Um, what was the next question? I'm sorry. Yeah, it's really, uh, I know that's a, it's a big question to ask and then have a follow-up right after yeah. that. But um, yeah, it's very in, ta in tandem with what I wanted to talk about the partner statue itself. Right? Yes. Yeah. Partner yeah. statue and sharing the magic as well. Yeah. Well, it, it, what's interesting about that is dad had done a bust of Walt on his own earlier on. Um, and I think, as far as I know, we have the only uh, copy of it. Uh, but it uh, it had been shown to Walt, and this is much earlier on. This is, you know, you're talking about early 60s. Walt had seen the figure, and he didn't like it very much. So Dad had, uh, you know, put it away and thought, well, you know, I just didn't get it. I didn't capture him. Uh, so... When he was asked um, by, uh, it was probably Marty Scalar that called him up uh, and asked him, and Marty was Marty and Dad were very close friends, and said, "Blaine, would you do this?" I, I know one of the conversations centered around, "Well, you know, I did try this bust, and I showed it to Walt, and Walt didn't care for it." And Marty said, "Yeah, but that was then, and this is different." and you know, you're the only one that could do it. And, and Dad had also done, by the way, a, a medallion of Walt for the U.S. Mint, which had, had to pass muster with Walt's wife, Lillian. And um, Lillian actually liked the medallion very well. So, and that actually had occurred after, after Dad, had done, Dad had done the initial sculpture. So I think he felt a little more confident that he could do it. But he did agree uh, to take it on. And uh, of course, the first thing they did was the bust. Uh, and that had to, uh, had to pass muster with everybody, uh, including the family. And um, I know certainly that, uh, uh, that uh, 
Ron and uh, uh, and Diane Disney were were very much involved in that, uh, as well as as Roy Disney Jr. too, uh, and others. Uh, and of course, all of Dad's old friends. John Hinch was still working, I think, at, at WDI at the time, so he had a pretty active role in Marty Scalar. Uh, and they really loved it. They liked it from the very beginning. Uh, and so they went ahead and did the full figure. And now it was, uh, the full figure was sculpted in Sedona, Arizona, which is where my dad was living at the time. And he had his own very large studio there. And then he had a, a very capable assistant, uh, Rick Terry. Uh, and um, uh, so they did the... Uh, 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 the entire figure, uh, and uh, got got that uh, uh, approved. Uh, the only uh, major change that occurred originally, and you've probably heard this story, but it's worth mentioning. Uh, when Dad sculpted it, uh, there was Walt and Mickey, and uh, in Mickey's uh, left hand, uh, instead of having it on his hip, his arm and his hip, the hand going into the hip, he had Mickey holding up an ice cream cone, which Dad thought was very appropriate uh, and and festive and fun, and. Uh, they ultimately made a decision to change that for a couple of reasons. One was they didn't want to run afoul of the lawyers who, uh, who said that they'd, there might be problems vis-a-vis -vis, uh, who had the ice cream concession at, uh, at the parks. And they didn't want to appear to be promoting uh, you know, any particular vendor. And then I think uh, John Hinch also uh, thought it was a little bit too cute, and Dad finally came to that uh, that view himself. So there is actually a uh, uh, a uh, one eighth size uh, sculpture that exists. And there's one at the studio, I think, or one at WDI, and we have one of the figure with Mickey holding up the ice cream cone. But they got rid of that and they changed it to its current uh, iteration, uh, and then. Uh, uh, ultimately, of course, that or very soon thereafter, they uh, they had to make a uh, a casting of that, and uh, and that was done in Prescott, Arizona, and then uh, the statue was unveiled in uh, in '93. And I think the only the only difficult challenge for Dad with the statue, which is always difficult, is is the mouth. Um, and any sculptor will tell you that, uh, you know, doing a mouth and especially having a mouth that's open slightly uh, is a challenge to get it to look right. Uh, but uh, I think he pulled it off. And uh, I guess I've been told anyway that that statue um, is certainly one of the top 10 most viewed statues uh, in the entire world. Uh, because it sits in the parks. So, and I think it, I think it does a great job. I agree. I think it also might be one of the most photographed just yeah. being in the spot yeah. that it is. There's always yeah. a line. I've, I've many times 
wanted to, and I have before, of course, gotten a picture in front of the statue, but on future trips, we'll go back and I'll think maybe we'll get another one, just an updated trip photo. And the line will be 20 people deep and I'll say, oh, we could scoot next time. (laughs) It's, it's definitely, uh, it got, always has a a long line to it. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot we have spoken about. It's also difficult to condense an entire career, especially one of this length and magnitude into one podcast episode. So just holistically thinking about your dad's career, which spans and his life, which spanned, you know, he was lucky, um, you know, living to the ripe old age in 97 um, to have such a, a long life and to be able to work on so many projects. What are you perhaps most um, proud of sort of looking back at your dad's career at uh, a holistic level? Oh gosh. You know, I, I, uh, he, he was a, he was a great animator. Uh, and as a kid, I, I was just blown away by the work that he could do. Uh, my, my father could, you know, could draw as well as any classical artist. And, and that was, he wasn't unique in that respect in terms of the talent at the studio. Uh, the great animators like Frank Thomas and, and Ollie Johnston and, uh, and Johnny Lonsberry and, and Mark Davis and others, uh, you know, could all do that. Um, but um, but uh, I'm, I'm very proud of his, his work as an animator. Um, and, um, and I love that he essentially had two careers his career almost was split down the middle between uh, uh, life as an animator and life as a, as a designer and director of three-dimensional works. So um, I think, you know, watching, I had the opportunity to watch many of the, uh, the Disney legends uh, in their years after retirement and, and listen to them speak. Uh, and they all shared, uh, I think, uh, uh, a humility um, about the work that they had done, um, despite their, in spite of their individual individual talents and, and achievements. Um, but I think, I think for my dad, he had that unique ability to um, to put uh, real feeling and emotion into uh, the figures that he worked on. And um, if he were, if you asked him who were the greatest animators and why were they the greatest animators, the reason that he would say someone like Frank Thomas uh, was, was a great animator was because of the feeling that he was able to get into his characters. It's one thing to draw a figure well. Um, it's another thing to have that figure really come to life and to have that feeling there. And I think my dad achieved that in the work he did three-dimensionally. Um, and right up to and including the partner statue. I think that that figure is, is filled with feeling and, and life. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the, the Roy Disney and, and Minnie Mouse figure too. That was a very important uh, sculpture, sculpture to dad too, because of his admiration for, uh, for Roy, um, not, you know, both as Walt's brother and, and, and 
co-founder of the company and um, but but also because he really admired Roy's integrity uh, and uh, and and sense of honor. So uh, and I think he did a good job with that figure too. And I know that Roy Disney Jr. was really very very pleased with that, and that made Dad very happy. Um, so I guess I would leave it at that. I think I think the ability to um, to get that emotion and get that feeling. Uh, into uh, uh, into artwork um, that would make him the most proud. I think. Really well said, and uh, I I totally agree. Um, I think he's definitely had a, a an amazing career. I, one of the he's a Disney legend for a reason, um, and and it it shows in all the work that he's done. Um, Wes, I really appreciate you taking so much time to chat about your dad's life and career. And uh, for me, it's been a a real pleasure to get to hear these stories and chat with you. So thank you so much for the time. Enjoyed it, Matt. Uh, Take care. Thank you. You too. With that, we close out episode 87 of the Imagineer podcast. I want to give a huge thanks once again to Wes for lending his time to this podcast episode. He had so many incredible stories to share about his father's life. I have always been amazed by what Blaine Gibson was able to accomplish in his lifetime at Walt Disney Imagineering and at the Walt Disney Studios. And it was so incredible to hear these stories from his son, Wes. So Wes, thank you so much again for taking the time to share those stories with us. Of course, I want to turn the conversation over to you to hear of all of Blaine's creations. I know there's a lot, so perhaps we'll divide them between his work in animation and his work with sculpting. But of all those creations, which is your favorite? You can send me your answers and feedback, as always, in so many different ways. I would encourage you to follow and engage with us first and foremost on social media. You can follow at Imagineer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn. You can follow us on Twitter at Imagineer News, and you can join our Facebook group, The Imagination, also called The Imagineer Podcast Disney Fan Community, to chat not just with me, but with other members of this listener community about this episode, this topic, and many other Disney topics. And if you would like to email me directly, you can reach out to me at imagineerpodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button, whether you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcast app. And that will ensure that you are the first to know when new podcast episodes become available, including any potential bonus episodes I might throw into the show. 
And if you have 30 seconds to leave us a rating and 60 seconds, two minutes, however long it takes to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store, that does so very much to help this community out. It lets others know why they should listen to Imagineer Podcast as well. And I do read each and every single review that I see come through Apple Podcasts. I'll often share them to my stories and certainly appreciate those of you who have taken the opportunity to rate and review the show in the past. But perhaps one of the best things you could do for the show is quite simply to share it. Whether you share out this particular episode with Wes, all about Blaine Gibson, or if you share out another episode of the show or any podcast episode or your favorite social media post, anything you do to share the word about Imagine Your Podcast does so much to spread the word about this very community. And if you'd like to take your love of Imagine Your Podcast to the next level, definitely look into Imagine Your Society, which you can learn more about by heading to patreon.com slash Imagine Your Podcast. And Patreon, by the way, is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I'll also leave a link in the show notes below. Essentially, Imagine Your Society is a way that you can help to support the show financially, help keep the lights on for Imagine Your Podcast. We do have, of course, many expenses with running this show, and every contribution you make gets you perks, rewards, and benefits in return, including a membership level starting at literally just $1 a month, which is $12 a year. And membership levels go beyond that. Of course, the more you're able to contribute, the more you get in return. But examples of some of the perks and rewards you might get included things like early access to every podcast episode along with my podcast production notes. You get access to a private Facebook group, close friends lists or access to my close friends list on Instagram, monthly calls just for Imagineer Society members, as well as some bonus events I like to throw in there here and now again. You get bonus podcast episodes and so much more. You can learn all about those perks again by going to patreon.com slash Imagineer podcast. And I would encourage you to look into our partners. First, look into the Kingdom Insider, who I've been partnering with, well, both of these companies for over a year now. Uh, You can learn more about the Kingdom Insider at thekingdominsider.com or the Kingdom Insider on any social media channel. But I would strongly consider following Christy and her team for all Disney news and updates because she has so much incredible information to share and her journalistic ethics are of the highest caliber. She only will share news that is confirmed by Disney and oftentimes will even reach out to Disney directly to get the story straight from the source. She does not just spread fake rumors. If there is a rumor, she labels it as a rumor, doesn't call it a, a, a real fact, and can also share some incredible tips about ways you can maximize and make the most of your Disney vacation, whatever the destination might be, and ways you can help to bring the Disney magic into your own home. So definitely, again, check her out at The Kingdom Insider at thekingdominsider.com or The Kingdom Insider on any social media channel. And when you're ready to book your next trip to either Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, Adventures by Disney, Aulani, or any other Disney destination around the world, you'll want to look into our partner, Academy Travel, because they have been planning Disney vacations 
for a long time. They've been in this business for over 25 years. And more importantly, they are diamond earmarked. So that is the highest level of distinction that Disney awards travel agencies because they can offer an incredible amount of service and do offer an incredible amount of service to those who book through them. And the best part is they do this at no additional cost to you. That's right, it won't be cost you any extra dollars or cents out of your pockets. They can help to even, in fact, save money on your next Disney vacation, help to take out the guesswork and plan out the perfect Disney vacation for you. You can request a free quote, no obligation, by clicking on any of the travel links in the show notes of this episode or by going to imagineyourpodcast.com. Click on the travel drop down at the top and select your destination. Fill out that form and they will get back to you as soon as possible with a free quote. Again, no obligation. Last but not least, I hope you are doing everything you possibly can to go after your hopes, your dreams, your goals, whatever they might be. Make the most of every day and make those dreams a reality. And remember, as always, that amazing quote from Horizons. If you can dream it, you can do it. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you again in a future episode of the Imagineer Podcast. Disneyland Tencennial, and I want you to tell her all about what you're doing here. We're working on a full-scale pirate, Julie, and uh, I'd like you to have a look at him here. Quite an angry-looking fellow. Well, he has to be a tough guy. <laughs> the pirates were pretty tough. This will animate when we have it in the show, you know. He'll talk, and, and we'll have all kinds of uh, body movements and things. They carry on a regular little uh, story, you know. Then he'll be audio-animatronic. Audio-animatronic, that's right. Good. She's sharp. She sure is. Yeah, but before uh, Blaine does the full scale, he works on the uh, on the, um, the miniatures. And then we got them right over here. Take a look at some of them. 